This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. 20 years ago this month, President Bill Clinton signed into law a plan to save the Florida Everglades. Today it remains one of the biggest environmental restoration efforts in the world. But even with a price tag that will be around $17 billion when it's all finished, the project remains underfunded and behind schedule. WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green has spent some 10 years reporting on the Everglades, and she spent the better part of this year working on a podcast to explore some of those details behind this mind-bogglingly complex plan to restore the River of Grass. The podcast launched this week, and today on Intersection we're joined by Amy Green. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm going to start at the very beginning of episode one of the podcast, which literally drops us into the Everglades. Let's take a listen. Just off the main road through the sawgrass prairie of Everglades National Park. I'm stepping very carefully because I do not want to fall in the water. The river of grass is collapsing, literally. The water feels great. It's so cool and refreshing. Whoa! Okay, I just fell in almost to my waist. (laughs) But I'm back now. What did I just fall into exactly? Yeah, that is uh, some of the, the, the peat and... The collapse here is, it's patchy. You get some larger ponds, but you see uh, a number of sawgrass pedestals that uh, remain. Tiffany Troxler is the science director at the Sea Level Solutions Center in the Institute of Environment at Florida International University. She and I are stepping precariously across a series of wooden and aluminum boards forming a narrow bridge across a 10-foot by 10-foot hole of water, basically, that is opened up here in the sawgrass. Peat is essentially the, the foundation that, uh, you know, all of or much of the wetland area that you see in the Everglades is supported by. So, Amy, you plunge us right into the action there, but you've been immersed in and fascinated by the Everglades for a very long time. Just walk it back to how it all started for you. It all started for me back in 2008. I was in Everglades National Park uh, reporting for um, a newspaper article, um, and this was back before I worked here at the station. Mm -hmm. And I was in Everglades National Park um, with a scientist named Tom Van Lent, and he told me this story about the old Ingraham Highway. And this was a highway that was built, it was it was the first highway giving Ford Model T's access to the fishing village of Flamingo on Florida Bay, which mm-hmm. is at the very most southern tip of the Florida Peninsula. And he told me that after this highway was constructed, Floridians noticed the vegetation on one side of the highway was changing and was different than on the north side of the highway. And today, it's still not fully understood why, but the belief is that it has to do with nutrients Mm -hmm. and that altering the flow of the water in the Everglades altered the distribution of nutrients just enough to change the vegetation on one side of the highway. And I was just in that moment hooked, Hmm. just irreparably hooked on this place. I just was like, wow, this is so fascinating. And I just wanted to learn everything I could about this place. You know, it's just, it's a beautiful place, but it's just, you know, when I say that it's beautiful, but confounding, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, how does building a highway alter the flow of water enough to change the vegetation in a significant way? Um, and, And the answer to that is, you know, the Everglades, it's such a finely tuned machine, I guess you would say, that 
inches of water make profound differences in the landscape and the vegetation and the wildlife. And and to me, it's just a fascinating thing. And I just I want to learn everything I can about it. It's interesting, Amy, when you think about the Everglades, you know, where it is, we have, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people living in South Florida, right? I mean, Miami is huge. And right on its doorstep is this still untamed wilderness. I mean, it's still a place of mystery and magic. And uh, people haven't really got their arms around or controlled the Everglades. And you kind of explore that in your podcast. Right. I mean, I, I say that the Everglades is kind of like a fraternal twin to the urban jungle of Miami right next door. Mm. You know, the Everglades is this place that really, you know, we say in the podcast, it, it, it alights the imagination as a veritable garden of Eden. You know, the Everglades is expansive. It, um, it's majestic. Um, but at the same time, again, it's elusive. Hmm. Um, we talk in the podcast about how uh, Florida's shores were, you know, the first on the continent to be discovered by early European explorers. But the Everglades itself was among the last places to be explored. And as a matter of fact, when Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the very famous journalist and environmental advocate, published her, you know, classic book, River, Everglades River of Grass, the the, the Everglades still was not fully mapped. Hmm. Um, and, and so it's, you know, there again, there's to me, it's just there's so much to learn. Um, it's, it's very misunderstood. It's very elusive. Now, the fate of the Everglades obviously is intertwined with South Florida. Uh, you know, drinking water is kind of tied into what happens in the Everglades there. And, of course, just draining the Everglades led to that vast boom in um, – development in South Florida, but is there a kind of a bigger lesson for the rest of the state, depending on just how this restoration project eventually ends up? Well, sure. And, you know, it's important to note that uh, the Everglades, the watershed begins right here in central Florida with the headwaters of Kissimmee River. And actually, um, if you've ever been to Shingle Creek, Shingle Creek is the headwaters of the Everglades. That's that's uh, where the path of the water begins. And it's important to note that the state agency that is supervising Everglades restoration is the South Florida Water Management District. Mm-hmm. And many of our listeners in Osceola County, um, uh, Osceola County is, is within uh, the territory of the South Florida Water Management District. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, the Everglades, it's Florida's most important water resource. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, in so in that way, you know, this is an important story to Floridians. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also one of the most substantial efforts at environmental restoration in the world. And so, you know, as a taxpayer, <laughs> it's important to keep an eye on this. This is a world model. You see engineers coming to Florida from Louisiana, for instance, to learn about our water management infrastructure here in Florida right. and take that back to the marshes of Louisiana. And very fundamentally, the Everglades, the, the story of the Everglades, it's, it's a story about how we as humankind – manage and and live with our natural resources and historically our conquest of our natural resources and so those are you know those are very universal themes very mm-hmm. fundamental lessons that we all need to learn from right and i think that that notion of the idea that you can conquer something like the everglades you kind of discovered in the course of your reporting over these years and in this podcast that that is kind of a misnomer right i mean you can never really completely conquer something like the everglades we were discussing amy when when we got this project 
going, this uh, podcast going, you come up with a list of ways the Everglades has been messed up by past efforts to drain it and then sort of fix it up. Why is it that plans to fix some of that environmental damage have been so complex and beset by yet more problems? Right, yeah. So I, for many years, have been working on a book on the Everglades in my spare time, and I was on deadline with that book last year and was writing just furiously and had this moment where I was at my desk and writing and just stopped for a minute and just thought, this is really messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I actually made a list of all of the ways that the Everglades and that Everglades restoration are, are messed up, kind of. And that became the basis of this podcast. The reason it's so complicated, Matt, is because Central and South Florida is home to some of the most complicated water management infrastructure in the world. It's on the level of what you see in the Netherlands, for instance, where they have constructed this enormously complex water management infrastructure to support that country, which is extraordinarily prone to sea level rise. In Florida, one, one reason it's so complicated in Florida is because Florida is flat. In other parts of the world, you see water management infrastructure designed around the concept that water flows downhill. Sure. We don't really have that here in Florida. <laughs> and so we've designed this very complicated water management infrastructure based on uh, water control pumps and, and water control stations, ditches and, and dikes and canals. Mm-hmm. And this is all controlled by the South Florida Water Management District and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And these are the men and women, as we say in the podcast, who really, in almost a literal sense, hold in their grip the Everglades' lifeblood water and direct its flow. And a lot of this also is governed by very complicated rules and regulations. And you get into a lot of that in the podcast. If you're just joining us, my guest is Amy Green, WMFE's environmental reporter. We're talking about her podcast, Drained, which is about the vast and complicated plan to restore the Everglades. I mean, one of the more mind-boggling plans for how to deal with all of that water that currently causes problems with toxic algae and the like is to essentially bury it, pump it deep underground. Just explain a little bit what the thought was there, if you could. Well, sure. And, you know, just to go back to a second, Matt, to your previous question, and when we consider this water management infrastructure that we've constructed in, in Central and South Florida, it really is a marvel. When we set out to drain the Everglades, you know, it's it's been a huge success. <laughs> we set out to drain the Everglades, and we achieved that. And And the reason we drained the Everglades was because we wanted to ignite an economic and development boom in Florida, and we sure have been successful at that. Mm-hmm. And so one of these just kind of mind-blowing projects that was considered as part of restoration is a concept called aquifer storage and recovery wells, or Mm -hmm. ASR wells. Under this idea, 300 deep wells would be drilled around Lake Okeechobee, and fresh water would be pumped and stored underground in a vast reservoir about 1,000 feet underground. And the idea was that the fresh water would float like a bubble within the brackish aquifer water, underground and that this water could be pumped back to the surface and used as needed. And speaking of a list of 
ways this is messed up. <laughs> when I first read about this idea, this was one that was floated, sorry for the pun, back in the uh, mid to late 90s. And I just was like, this is crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And you get into some of the engineering around that and sort of why that plan has been modified in, in the process. Right. But, you know, here's the fundamental lesson from that idea. And, and this is something that we talk about in the podcast, Matt, it, which is, In a fundamental sense, Everglades restoration is about finding a place for billions of gallons of fresh water that is needed to revive the Everglades, our most important freshwater resource in Florida, a globally significant place of biodiversity. And in Florida, in modern Florida today, with our booming population, there's no place for this water to go. And that is Probably one of the hardest problems of Everglades restoration is finding a place for this water to go, finding the storage for the vast amount of fresh water that's needed for the Everglades, and doing it in uh, balancing uh, the growth and development that we have in Florida today. I wonder, I mean, you get into some of the engineering that went on to drain the glades in the first place. Do you get the sense that if some of that development were happening now and we were sort of confronted with a system like the Everglades and people were saying we need to reroute some of this water, would there be a way to do things in a way that's more environmentally friendly, more environmentally sustainable, and perhaps there wouldn't be the same sort of set of problems that people are now faced with when they think about how to try and reverse engineer some of these issues and and restore the river of grass? Well, I think what you see in the Everglades is an evolution of our values when it comes to our natural resources. You know, when the Everglades were drained, there were various attempts at drainage in the Everglades. And then back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there was this very large effort to drain and control the Everglades and kind of take control of the Everglades once and for all. And Mm -hmm. when that project was constructed, the idea at the time was that water was an unlimited resource. We would never run out of it. We needed to take control of that so that, you know, we as this burgeoning state of Florida could give life to this economic and development boom in Florida. And fast forward 50, 60, 70 years, our values have changed. Mm -hmm. And we now see, we now recognize Florida and our water supply as, as a resource that very soon we could run out of as our population continues to grow. And so... At the heart of that tension is something that I see it's it's an undercurrent that runs beneath a lot of my reporting as an environmental journalist in Florida and that is this tension between an economy a state economy that is really based on growth and development and concern for our natural resources which are increasingly stressed and a fear that eventually we could reach a breaking point and our our natural resources will just be unable to support uh, this economy that we've constructed, which is around growth and development. And, you know, I think it's a very common thing for people to move to Florida. And once Floridians settle here and call Florida home, we feel like no more people should move to Florida. Sure. (laughs) And I think that's uh, something you see across the board. So what's the prognosis then? I mean, are the scientists and ecologists that you spoke to uh, in your reporting on this podcast, are they hopeful that the glades can survive and flourish alongside agriculture and continuing development in Florida? Well, Matt, I don't want to give away any podcast spoilers here. (laughs) If you want to find out whether the Everglades can be saved, you should 
go onto your podcast app and search for Drained and take a listen. But what I will say, as an environmental journalist, one thing that does give me hope is that life always finds a way, <laughs> right? Sure. And I mean, I report sometimes on invasive species, like in the podcast, we talk about the Melaleuca, which mm-hmm. is a very infamous invasive species in the Everglades. And this is a tree that you chop it down, it grows back, you burn it, and it releases, you know, a million seeds or whatever, and it just grows more trees. And, you know, it's just, it. it this is a tree that just wants to grow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and reporting on these invasive species, you know, it's an obvious problem when species like that are taking over a habitat. But you got to admire the species' tenacity. And you also see that with sea level rise in the Everglades. You see saltwater encroaching on freshwater marshes, and you see those freshwater marshes moving inland. You see mangroves, which are coastal trees, moving inland, and you see the freshwater marshes moving inland. And, and, um, and you, 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 know, you see nature evolve and adapt. I've been speaking with Amy Green, WMFE's environmental reporter, about her podcast, Drained, and that podcast just launched this week is about the plan to save the Everglades. The podcast is produced in partnership with the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, and that's available wherever you get your podcasts. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity, Matt. Still to come on Intersection, many businesses have been in survival mode for the past year, but some are figuring out new ways to thrive. We'll talk to three Central Florida businesses about adapting to change and what the future looks like. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. 2020 has been an exercise in survival for many businesses, but it's also been an opportunity to adapt and try new things. Restaurants suddenly had to pivot to delivery only, and manufacturers were faced with disruptions to the supply chain and, in some cases, demand for new products in short order. We're going to talk to three businesses about how they've ridden out the pandemic and what 2021 could look like. Well, joining me is Mauricio Toro. He is CEO and co-founder of TechFit Digital Surgery. Uh, Mauricio, welcome back to Intersection. Matthew, thank you for having us again. We're also joined by Dina Jolbich. She is the CEO of Align Business Advisory Services. Dina, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Matt Hinckley joins us. He is the owner and operator of Hinckley's Fancy Meats inside East End Market in Orlando. Matt, welcome back as well. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Uh, Mauricio, I want to start with you because you, uh, when we spoke to you last, this was um, a couple months into the pandemic, I want to say, and you'd kind of done some things to pivot a little bit and uh, refocus your business, not only to kind of cope with some of the challenges um, on the, you know, in terms of what you were doing and how to how to kind of uh, make sure your business survived, but also uh, to help out. Uh, folks in your home country of Colombia, just explain sort of what was going on there. Yeah, so when we talked last, uh, we were right in the process of launching uh, the, the Inspiramed initiative, where we uh, as an engineering team joined forces with different universities in Latin America and different government institutions in Colombia to, to create uh, mechanical ventilators. 
uh, we, we designed three mechanical ventilators, partnered with the, the industry to, to manufacture them and manufactured several hundred ventilators that were delivered across the country uh, successfully and have uh, helped cope with the ICU overflow uh, in, the, in, in Colombia. And that, that, that was, uh, that was our, our main task for, the, for, the good, for a good part of the past 10 months uh, or so that we've been in pandemic mode. Matt, if I could uh, bring you into this conversation, um, uh, obviously the restaurant industry has been really hard hit, especially here in central Florida, because we're so dependent on the tourism industry. And I guess, you know, um, in Orlando, people who are familiar with, um, you know, with, with where you are at the East End Market, I guess that's a bit of a niche, but you probably get some tourists coming through there as well. What have you had to do to adapt to this new normal, in, in inverted commas there, um, that we've experienced under the pandemic? Um, I think we found ourselves in a position as a lot of other restaurants and that, you know, obviously people aren't going out and sitting down and, uh, to eat and uh, they're looking more for uh, food that can be um, eaten at home. So that was uh, the main focus for us was trying to figure out how to get uh, sort of into the delivery game that we uh it's a space that we didn't really occupy before the pandemic um we initially started off as a company that shipped meat nationwide so it had a lot of the infrastructure that already sort of existed the website existed for people to you know you can go online and buy a lot of the products but we're shipping it to new york you know san francisco seattle uh and we just had to sort of change that so instead of shipping it across the country we're just shipping it locally um, mm-hmm. and we saw a big pivot from, uh, you know, we're, we're a sandwich shop, but we're also a meat shop. We focus a lot on charcuterie and deli meats. Um, and we saw a big pivot from people that were buying sandwiches, um, which is normally our bread and butter to people that were buying lunch meat in bulk. Um, you know, and, and it's food that's easy to eat at home. If people that didn't want to cook, we, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing to open up pate or, um, you know, mm-hmm. some meat snacks out of the refrigerator to eat with like crusty bread and pickles and mustard and stuff. So we saw a big pivot from sandwiches to, to people that were buying uh, deli cuts and charcuterie that had, you know, were working from the house or had kids at the house, um, you know, people not going to school. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, that was the big, the big shift for us was moving into pretty much an all delivery model. Well, uh, Dina, Joe, what if I could bring you into this conversation, you're kind of looking at other businesses and trying to help them cope with this pandemic too. So uh, just talk a little bit first, if you could, about your business and how you had to adapt what you do to to deal with uh, some of the restrictions of the pandemic. So we're a, a, a business in mergers and acquisitions advisory firm. And so we work with organizations um on their strategic plan and whether, uh, and that's usually growth orientated. Most folks come to mm-hmm. us and say, I want to grow, um, but I don't know how or what that means or, or what the best avenues are for that. And, and we work with them to define that. What we saw and what we have seen uh, with COVID is uh, that definition of growth uh, has changed uh, for some. Um, and for others, it's more survival. So it's, it's uh, it just depends on the industry that you're in. There's some sectors that have been harder hit um, mm-hmm. than others. Uh, there are uh, you know those in you know hospitality type driven organizations and travel obviously are um, are hurting substantially. Whereas 
other businesses who are uh, those essential businesses that we've you know heard about so much in the media, uh, the the need to have businesses, you know, regardless of a pandemic, the garbage has to go out, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. They're thriving and, and growing substantially. So we've just seen um, a mix of of demand and needs um, be very sector specific. Um, also for us, um, we're a very face to face business, uh, and mm-hmm. we haven't been able to be so face to face with our clients and. Um, by virtue of that, we've had to really lean on some some virtual tools, uh, especially for mergers and acquisitions. You know, that's a that's a transaction where two companies are coming together, and it's kind of like a marriage. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to know you if you want to get married to someone if you can't get in the same room as them. So um, mm-hmm. it, it has certainly been a challenge. But as more states have have lightened up some of those restrictions, um, uh, it, it's becoming a little bit more. Uh, uh, easy and, and fluid to have those types of meetings but it was a challenge in the beginning lots of zoom meetings that's for sure yeah and i should point out we are having this conversation on zoom right now if you're just joining me my guests are dina jalbert with align business advisory services matt hinckley with hinckley's fancy meats and uh, mauricio toro with TechFit digital surgery uh, um mauricio thinking about the health care industry i'm wondering if um, the last nine months has presented some new opportunities or, or made you kind of rethink your business at all? Like, ha- has it really changed the the kind of core things that you do in terms of what you manufacture and, and get out to, to clients? It, it has because uh, even though we, we make the custom devices that are used in the surgery, a big portion of our of our business is how do we educate surgeons and how we train them uh, to use our products. And we used to do that by having either physical product demonstrations in the hospitals or having like uh, huge events where we put, got surgeons together and trained them on how to use the product. And obviously having a, having a first our sales force going into the hospitals, into the different healthcare settings can become a huge uh, transmission vector for the virus. And number mm-hmm. two, well, you don't want to get all the healthcare workers together and run the risk of having a, a super spreader event and depriving the health system of many providers at the same time. So we have had to develop um, online training events and online trainings and ways to reach uh, our physicians remotely. And this has uh, impacted our reach, actually, because uh, every year we, ho- we host a global event. We hosted it last October. We hosted every October. Uh, we were supposed to host it in Lake Nona, and we're expecting 100 guests. Well, we hosted it virtually and had 450 guests from around the world. So it mm-hmm. definitely changes the perspective and the reach we can have. Matt, if you're in a situation like, or if you're in a location like East End Market, you're probably relying on a lot of foot traffic, right? And so has that really kind of affected who comes by and samples your stuff? And have you had to compensate in other ways to, to get the message out about the, the kinds of food that you're making? Um, I think that, uh, again, we, we just, we just, it's in one of those situations where I just got lucky and that there's so much outdoor seating and, uh, you know, there's a massive courtyard at East End Market. So, um, you know, I think people are still coming out and being a bit cautious about uh, lingering around uh, too much indoors. Um, mm-hmm. But there's uh, there's a couple different entrances to the property um, and there's a lot of uh, outdoor seating. So what we've seen is a lot of the same faces and, you know, we're still providing for the neighborhood. Um, and, and that's most of, uh, I think, what we're seeing uh, come in is, is the locals. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 
you know, I think a lot of it to them, it's like, it's almost like a grocery store. There's so much stuff in that market that you can just pick up. It's, you know, there's, there's a bakery, there's a cheese shop, there's a coffee shop, you know, we have the meat. So it's, it's sort of a one-stop shop. And uh, in some ways it's a little bit less crowded than you might find in uh, some of the bigger package stores, bigger grocery stores. So uh, I think a combination of, you know, between, you know, a lot of access to the outdoors and uh, a little bit less crowds than you might find in the, uh, in Publix for, you know, or I shouldn't say Publix, but in, in any of those bigger mm-hmm. package stores, um, you know, kind of keeps, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a false sense of security because it's, you know, it's, I, I think that, um, you know, everybody has a little bit of uh, fatigue from this. Um, and uh, sure. I think that, uh, you know, we've, we like I said, we've just been fortunate and we've had such a good uh, group of locals that, that kind of come in and prop us up. Uh, Dina, just coming back to you, uh, talking about Central Florida, we have a, a kind of a unique economy here in Central Florida. I mean, there are there are businesses of the likes of Mauricio's, kind of more high tech and um, medical technology, et cetera. But but it's it's very much um, you know the core of what happens in Central Florida is a lot of tourism, hospitality, um, and that industry has been really hard hit. Uh, what are you kind of seeing and, and what are you hearing from clients or what have you been hearing from clients over the last sort of nine, 10 months as to how they've had to adapt if they're in those industries? Yeah, they've really had to, uh, to pivot and um, find alternate ways to, uh, to survive and sustain, uh, especially in the, the more recent months now that a lot of the uh, federal stimulus um, programs have have run their course, uh, and but yet the the, the uh, there hasn't been a you know vast improvement um, uh, in um, demand you know from from consumers. So uh, you know you're, you see it in the news. Uh, a lot of the local hospitality organizations are announcing layoffs. Um, we're seeing uh, tons of restaurant closures, uh, which is is really sad. You know these are small businesses and um, you know, the, the downstream effect of that are all the service providers to those industries, um, you know, the, the hotels, um, the, uh, you know, the theme parks themselves and, you know, all the, the ecosystem that's built around travel and tourism uh, and the sectors that feed into that are, are also equally as effective uh, or affected, I should say. Um, what we are seeing and hearing, you know, we work with a lot of um, uh, investors and acquirers because we do mergers and acquisitions. And what we're hearing from those uh, folks is, uh, and even specific to Central Florida, um, that they do expect a pretty dramatic rebound uh, once it's safe to do so. Um, everyone, frankly, has been a caged animal <laughs> for for the past, you know, uh, year uh, or so. And so, um, and, and you've seen it in the stock market's response to the vaccine news and things like that. So um, uh, there is a anticipated, um, uh, very strong rebound to happen for travel, tourism, and entertainment. Um, but it is a function of this uh, having to continue to weather the storm until you know until that uh, takes place. Mauricio, thinking about the prospect of a vaccine, uh, does that kind of prospect on the horizon, you know, two three months potentially before it's widely available, or potentially longer? Uh, what sort of impact might that have on your business and, and kind of where you go from here? 
Well, first of all, uh, I have to say it's completely fascinating that science was able to come up with a safe and effective vaccine in this time. And all the, uh, irrespective of all the debates around it, I think uh, the health technology industry has been up to the challenge. I, uh, we think that the vaccine will, um, will create a dramatic uh, increase in our activities. And as soon as the healthcare professionals get vaccinated, uh, our team as essential workers will also get vaccinated and we will start uh, approaching and getting things a little bit uh, closer to normal. Uh, but I would like to take advantage of this opportunity to, 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 to give a small warning. I was reading uh, just a couple of weeks ago that most of the people who perish on their attempts on Everest perish on the way down. So mm -hmm. now that we have a vaccine inside and that we have reached the summit, now is extra time to be careful and not to, you know, throw caution to the wind and run risks. Now that there's a vaccine inside, everything, uh, the, the, and if we can avoid the disease and avoid the challenges from it uh, until we get the vaccine, it's even better. So this is this is a moment, even though we're we're fatigued and it's been a very demanding quarantine on everybody. This this is the the most important time to be cautious. Matt Hinckley, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, delivery, because, uh, you know, to your point, a lot of restaurants, uh, the ones that have, have made it through the pandemic have gone to a delivery model. And I know that there's kind of companies out there that provide that. There's sort of smaller scale delivery services. Are you seeing some changes there, like like in terms of maybe more of a demand for that and, and some changes in the way food is delivered and how that whole kind of economic process works out? Um, we saw a big demand for it in the beginning of the pandemic, and that kind of teetered off once people started coming out of their houses a little bit more. Um, we were doing all of our deliveries with uh, our own staff and personnel. Um, and, it, you know, if we see uh, the demand for that increase, then we'll, you know, we'll adjust the business model to accommodate it. Um, I think, you know, along the lines of what uh, Mauricio was saying, you know, there's there's a lot of things that a lot of change that COVID uh, brought out and a lot of uh, accelerated um, change. And I think that once this vaccine um, arrives and you know we start getting back to whatever the new normal is, I think a lot of these changes are gonna be changes that um, are here to stay. I think you're gonna see, mm -hmm. you know, within uh, my line of work, I think you'll see a lot more of these ghost kitchens. I, you know, people, you know, which is, ghost kitchen is like a remote kind of warehouse kitchen. Uh, there's no dining in, it's all delivery. Um, it offers a lot of like, you know, lower operating expenses for the, for the restaurant. Uh, but you, you'll see, you'll see those ghost kitchens in popularity, uh, will continue to rise. I think you'll see, you know, more delivery service. Um, and I think we'll see, um, you know, it's going to change the way people eat. I think a lot of these restaurants, like, were forced to turn into sort of like corner stores. Um, you know, they offering a lot of the, you know, the stuff that they would have normally just on their menu. They're offering is like uh, things that you can take home. I've seen a lot of restaurants that, you know, if you need a, access to, you know, cuts of meat that you might be, not be able to buy in the grocery store, different condiments that the restaurants make. Uh, I think you'll see that is a, a trend that was kind of born out of COVID that will uh, likely continue after the crisis. A lot of the, a lot of restaurants are really small 
um, operations and, and to be able to maneuver through this is easier, I think, than a lot of bigger operations because it's so steering a canoe is a lot easier than steering a battleship. Dina, uh, Joel, but I wanted to come back to you. First of all, how do you think the next uh, six months are going to play out um, in your line of work? And what would be your advice to businesses that are kind of contemplating the next uh, episode as we come out of the worst of this pandemic and look to the future? Sure. So we anticipate 2021 to actually be a really strong uh, year overall. There will be a rebound um, as um, vaccines are rolled out, not just uh, locally, um, but on a national and global level. Um, so much of Central Florida has depended on global tourism. So the fact that there's you know, global vaccinations taking place, <clears throat> I think we'll, we'll continue to support that in addition to, um, you know, to, uh, to just the United States. But um, it, we are anticipating, uh, you know, a really strong rebound. Uh, it, it, this next six months, it'll be phased in a bit more because, you know, obviously vaccines can be given to everyone right in the beginning. So it is going to have to uh, take time. That supply chain and distribution of, of all of those is, is going to take uh, take a bit of time. But as it does, it's just going to uh, to free, free things up. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, we've all been... Uh, bottled up for so long. Um, we're anxious mm-hmm. to see our family. We're anxious to see our friends. We're anxious to go to sporting events. We're anxious to, um, you know, just do the things that we haven't been able to do for so long that once we're able, uh, there's going to be a rush for it. So um, this is where you hear in the media, the, the, the it's going to be a V-shaped recovery or some cases a U, depending on how deep you think the valley has been. Um, but it, it, in all cases, it's expected to go up pretty sharply, and that's what we're anticipating. Um, my advice to business owners is to um, is to plan for that and take advantage of that. Um, in the 2008-2009 uh, recession, obviously a, a, a different uh, macroeconomic driver there in terms of what caused recession, but but nonetheless, those that um, invested and uh, and prepared for for that subsequent rebound um, came out of that growing, uh, you know, I think the metric is around 35%. Those who did not um, didn't grow at all uh, and, and really just kind of uh, uh, survived. Now, as we were discussing earlier, there's some industries that survival is a, is, is a win, uh, you know, those hardest hit. Um, but for, for the others that I was talking about earlier, um, where they've been, you know, doing well um, and thriving a bit, you know, reinvesting in your business and um, and being prepared for this uh, this larger rebound sets you up for success. So I I really um, advise folks to to think about that and plan for that um, rather than react to it. Be proactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mauricio, what does the next six months look like for you and your business? Well, we're actually in the, in a very ambitious plan. We're preparing for the comeback. We are uh, in the process of raising a capital round at the moment that will enable us to be better prepared to come back swinging. We have been having successful talks with investors, and our outlook is actually pretty positive. We're preparing for a for a post COVID world and to take advantage of that as best as we can. Matt, how does twenty twenty one look for you at this point? 
Uh, I think 2021's got to be looking better than uh, 2020. I think that, um, like I said, that you know the restaurant industry will continue to uh, sort of navigate uh, the waters, and and something something good I, I hope will be born out of all of this. Um, you know, if anything, I think uh, you know convenience and you know just a, a different. You know, it's going to change the restaurant industry, but I think it'll change us for the better uh, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're uh, it's an industrious group of people, and we're going to figure it out. Um, I think that there's a lot of challenges, but like I said, I think that once the vaccine uh, comes out and people start coming out of their homes, um, I think it's one of the things that people miss the most. They miss their families. They miss going out to eat. Um, and I think we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think we'll be one of the first industries to see a really big rebound. Well, Matt Hinckley is the owner and operator of Hinckley's Fancy Meats at the East End Market in Orlando. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. We're also joined by Mauricio Toro. He is the CEO of and co-founder of TechFit Digital Surgery. Uh, Mauricio, thank you as well. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you to all the audience for listening to our story. And uh, Dina Jalbert is the uh, CEO of Align Business Advisory Services. Dina, thank you so much as well. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Still to come, Orlando-based Americana band BMO returns to the stage for a series of socially distanced performances, and they've produced a new music video. We'll talk to them after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The pandemic came at just the wrong time for Orlando Americana band BMO, disrupting their busiest few months of performance. After a hiatus, though, the band is back performing, socially distanced and sometimes from porches rather than pubs. They're about to unveil a new music video. I spoke to the band, Dan Harshbarger, Sean Quinn, Matt Giuliano, Tony Mickle and Justin Braun via Zoom about classic cars and garden gnomes and how the pandemic has given them a new perspective on performance. BMO, it's been a while since we've had you on intersection how have the last nine months been uh the pandemic's been pretty tough on the recording industry in general so how, how have you folks made out well you know it was uh, initially it was a punch in the gut to be honest with you because you know a lot of what we do during the year like especially the month of march um we have a little bit of a celtic bent to what we do with our folks so um we get a lot of gigs in march a lot of big gigs and we had a lot of stuff lined up and uh, all of a sudden i mean we were poof, we were we were, we were every be, night like, yeah, of the week. Downtown um, streets were going to be rocking, and and all of a sudden, just poof, yeah, it just all went away. And I, and honestly, um, yeah, in the very near term, it was such a shock. That I think all of us we just sort of went recluse for just a little bit, and which was nice. Yeah, I mean, we 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 were pretty busy before that, and to be honest with you, and then we we kind of we kind of grew to. I mean. Let's be honest. Within within our group, we've got uh, four wives, seven, and now eight kids. Um, and so focusing Matt's just on Justin. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but focusing on those things at first, and then and then honestly, kind of watching our friends um, who who are really like full time, full time, full time musicians like struggle hard was was hard to watch, you know. Um, and so we just kind of withdrew a little bit and tried to support them remotely uh, with their you know live streams and things like that. But then um, as the summer kind of came on, um, we were itching to do stuff. And so we started to at least talk about writing again. And we started writing a little bit. Um, and then we got some opportunities. And all of us, honestly, just 
really since the end of summer for us, it's been unbelievably busy. And what, what was great, I guess, for us during that time period is we had a, I guess, some time to think about where we're heading and take a deep breath and then really look at the opportunities that were now in front of us and kind of rethink everything we're doing. We got an opportunity within one of the local parks. Um, SeaWorld had us out for the Craft Beer Fest and that was awesome. We did live streams, uh, everything from New Standard to uh, we've been doing gigs for um, WFIT um, oh, yeah. over the in Melbourne. The Day of Giving. Day Giving yeah, yeah, the Manello yep, Art and, Museum. Yep, we supported yeah. their white canvas party. Yeah. So we were the band for that. Well, I think I think the the one that's been getting a lot of spins right now for us, and uh, one we've been pushing on Spotify, and we have a. I, I don't want to let any cats out of the bag. Can he, I think he can. JB, spill, <laughs> spill the beans, man. No, spill the beans. Right. This is for WMFB only. Yes, yeah. you're getting the exclusive on what we have been posting nonsense about on social media. The big reveal is the song Nova as a video. We're releasing our video. Moving pictures. Filmed in historic downtown Sanford. Did I give, to, give away too much? I think so. No, that's fine. There's okay. also a car in it. There's a car in and it. And the Sullivan. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the Chevy Nova. We're putting out a video for the song. Um, the countdown is on. Uh, when, when you're hearing this on the airwaves, I think there will only be, what, two days left? We picked a date. We're counting down to it. And uh, yeah, Tony, you thought up... Uh, a pretty interesting concept for the video, didn't you? So, um, you know, long story short, um, you know, I wrote the song for my grandparents because I love them and miss them. And uh, they had a really awesome uh, Chevy Nova and it was just my papa's car. So I wrote a song about it. The guys loved it. We recorded it. And uh, for the video, we decided to go ahead and um, secure a 1966 Chevy Nova 2. So uh, close enough is for... For me, it's not the exact car, but uh, it was, um, and you'll see in the video, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but we had to figure out, you know, so what? <laughs> like, it's a car. So we shot in Sanford. So we shot at a front porch there. So um, we wanted to make sure we did all the social distancing. So everything was kind of as outside as we could make it. So we shot on a porch. Um, JB rode a bicycle, which is wonderful. <laughs> I was so happy that he didn't fall. And then um, we shot at uh, a place called The Sullivan in downtown Sanford. So um, we just kind of mixed it to where um, uh, <laughs> we're a little, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out where everybody is uh, in the video. So it's kind of fun. And uh, we made sure to throw in some, uh, a gnome or two. <laughs> Thinking about that song now, I mean, you you wrote it for your grandparents, Tony, you know, this, this year has been a challenging year for everyone, especially people who are thinking of trying to keep those connections with their their loved ones, whether it's grandparents, other people who may be at risk um, of contracting coronavirus, is that something you think about when you play the song now? Sort of an added layer of meaning to it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I just you know, I mean, honestly, it's just tough. Sometimes I miss them, and it's there's nothing I can do about it. But I can definitely honor them, and I think about them all the time when I play this, and you know, I love my grandparents and I miss them. And, uh, I was, a, you know, just a little kid in Alabama and now I'm here on the radio with you. <laughs> They'd be so proud. I wish they could see it. Well, that's, that's the thing that's been tough this year too, is like, we have a lot of like friends and family that would come see us the shows that we were always happy to see. And, you know, that's hard to avoid when you're practicing or when we're like jamming around together to think that, you know, that, you know, my parents haven't been able to see us this year or any of that. So, 
that, that's definitely been tough. And that's definitely, I know for me personally, has been on the forefront of my mind kind of whenever I'm playing. And I, in addition to when we're playing here, like I practice a lot. So that's always kind of thinking like, when am I going to get to play the songs for the people that I care about? We'll, we'll be able to see it again. That's been, that's been a little bit tough. Do you all have zoom fatigue at this point? Um, I'm going a little cross-eyed from it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there's a silver lining, we're, we're fortunate to live in like the one time in human history when we still can connect with people, even though we're, you know, not, we're social distancing and all that. Like it's really social distancing in the right word. We're all physically distancing, but we can, we can, you know, socially interact whenever we want. That's, and we're in like the one time in human history where that's been really possible. And also just looking at all the technological innovations, watching people be really creative with their live streams and how Zoom has scrambled to, you know, capture however much in the market. I like just, I'm very curious to see how the world and how, you know, on a more specific level, how the music industry is going to be different when people start playing shows again. I have a suspicion that every artist on the planet is going to come out with an album next year because everybody's been, uh, sitting in their houses writing songs so yeah. it's really good to see you though man <laughs> like yeah. we like we, we yeah. haven't seen you in forever but there you are on this tiny little screen and we're like at least we can hear your voice and you know we, we yeah. miss you man so believe it or not we have shows coming up even so we're playing the so the plaza they were doing a front porch so a lot of porches like yeah, a, just lot of porches. Know, That's a lot of porches so there's definitely a pattern here porch demic exactly <laughs> <laughs> outdoors has been really good to, to us and for us and then um a lot of places you know a lot of venues are struggling right now so finding creative ways to to entertain and have artists come in and, and keep their own doors open and i guess the doors so far open that you're actually outside which is great um the plaza has been doing that for the front porch uh, series we're playing there again on january 28th it's a, it's a thursday night pretty excited about that one the front and porch you series. get your tickets through the plaza website is that how you oh, that's right yeah, yeah. The Front Porch series has been really cool. There's been mm-hmm. a lot of great bands that have been on it. Um, we were, what, the second band who played there, but, like, there was um, the New Orleans Brass Band. There was the 502s. There, uh, what else was there? CC Tennille and Soul Commotion was there. Yeah. Oak Hill. Oak Hill Drifters. Yeah. 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 Shout out. And then um, we're also, so, and then, of course, another porch. We're playing the Sanford Porch Fest which is in February, and that is on the 27th? 27th, right? yeah. that's on the 27th. So, uh, so what they do is they basically take in all of a certain part of the neighborhood. It's, yeah, right down, right downtown, well, yep. in the historic district. In the historic Sanford. district, and we get a porch to play on, and then you basically go from porch to porch listening to music. Bring your chairs, just sit out and mm-hmm. scatter, and, you know, all that good stuff. So, Our goal is to stop traffic. Yes, but traffic's already been stopped. <laughs> with, the, with the music, not the, not our bodies. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, BMO, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about the, the music video and appreciate it, as always. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's really good to see you again and to hear your voice. Yeah. And you can find a link with more details about BMO on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.